Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Okay, welcome back to yet another Performance Matters podcast. Bob Moser here, one of your co-hosts. We are so honored that you've joined us. We're well into our 55th podcast now and honored and just passed our 40,000th download. So we are really uh, excited and hope these are of value. By all means, uh, comment, let us know, send us feedback. You know where we live. We would love to hear topics and ideas that you'd love to hear in the future. Happy to host those conversations. And again, we are excited that you joined us. I am extremely excited for today's particular podcast because I get to spend time with a dear friend and one of my heroes in the space, a learning leader of great stature in our area, Mr. Doug Holt. It's great to have you here, Doug. Welcome. Thank you, Bob. I'm really glad to be here. Excited to have this chat with you. Us too, my friend. So I don't do the bio thing. I don't read them from any cue cards, that kind of deal, because it kind of helps us segue into the conversation. So why don't you start out, if you wouldn't mind, my friend, by level setting for our listeners about sort of your resume on your journey and roles you've been in as you've kind of gotten yourself into this L&D space. And, and a little bit on the organization, of course, you oversee. Uh, so I, I have to say my journey in L&D can best be described as the thing I was doing until I figured out what I really wanted to do. Uh, I, I got introduced uh, to the field as a student worker in the continuing education department in college. Wow. And then after I bombed my state department foreign service interview just prior to graduation, <laughs> I really needed a job and they needed somebody to fill a slot. So they hired me as a receptionist. So that was Whoa. my start in, in learning. Uh, I was eventually promoted to a professional position specifically because, and I quote, mm -hmm. You don't know anything and we can train you to fit what we want. And I'm going to come back to this later because it occurred to me fairly recently that the world has come full circle. Yeah. In that regard. <laughs> uh, so, so I'll talk to that a little bit more later. I then spent several years uh, moving about the higher ed community, doing workforce development, and then eventually transitioned out of that world and jumped into the federal government realm, mm. uh, first with the Defense Intelligence Agency, where I ended as the chief learning officer, and then over at SIGI, or the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, overseeing their three training academies, and we provide training for the inspector general community. Pretty spectacular. Thank you for your service, my friend. It's been an honor to be a, a part of that journey since your DIA days. It was really been great to watch your work. So friend, one of the, re we, we've kind of been kindred spirits on this journey. <laughs> we have our strong feelings about the direction of L&D and, and the work that of course you're doing right now and the good work with your team. Given an idea of the aha, this is all about performance, right? Performance matters. Uh, we, we bang the drum about the shift to performance first, shift away from training first, this kind of deal. What was your aha around this pivot that got you to think about this performance first approach in your work? So I vividly remember this. It was at an ATD event and you were the presenter. So I sat down there, you started talking. This was maybe eight or nine years ago at this point. I don't know, It's it's been a while. Your comments that day really filled in the answers to major questions I was asking myself about the L&D profession as a whole. So for example, if training works, 
Why doesn't it work? Why is it that we always must make a circumstantial case to demonstrate ROI, mm. if I can use that term, instead of a direct evidence case? We could never do direct evidence case. So as you were sitting there going through your methodology and general thoughts about the L&D field, suddenly everything made sense. They were the answers to the questions I was asking myself. And, and I think I went up to you right after that and said, hi, I'm Doug, and I want you to come talk to us. <laughs> that was it. We did. And the journey began. So friend, we, we've had this conversation over a beer or two over the years and, and conversations and lunch at your group. Why? And it's a personal frustration for me because I've been waving this banner for 10 plus years. To me, this is why we're called to do what we do. It's just so painfully apparent. Why do you think L&D has been so, and in some cases, I mean, just downright resistant. I mean, I've gotten hate mail, honestly, to make this pivot. Why do you think our industry finds this so hard to downright do this in the first place? Well, I, I think there are a number of factors that come into play and I'll list a few of them. I'm sure there are more. Uh, first one is we're shaped by our experiences and our collective experience as learners is in the K through 12 or K through college model or slight variations thereof. It's what we know. And mm -hmm. you can look at most of what happens and see, yep, that's the K through 12 model, really, after you kind of filter through the jazziness that might have been applied. And one of the things that I used to do at DIA when I was trying to make the point that we need to do things differently is I looked up an image of learning in the middle ages. And, <laughs> and really, I don't know if the image truly had anything to do with learning or how they really did it. But it was a guy standing at a lectern talking to rows of people uh, who were just kind of passed out. In, in the in the pews or whatever it was or in the rows listening to him teach because they were so bored and so I put that in my presentations and I said you see much difference between this and what we do today <laughs> and of course the answer is no it's <laughs> largely the same in my mind we've been doing the same thing the same way since the middle ages so that's some pretty significant shaping that, that yeah. would be number one Number two, in my experience, most people enter the learning field as a collateral duty to fill some kind of role that they don't know much about. That's how I got into it. Exactly. They learn what to do from those who preceded them, uh, who learn from the people before them, and so on and so forth. It's sort of a hand-me-down, here's what I know, and I'm going to teach you what I know. Yeah. There's no right way to do L&D. Uh, there's just lots of flavors of the month. Hmm. that we encounter and people run to this one or that one, but there's no sort of central standards that people tie to or body of research that people know about or whatever, you know, I mean, it's just kind yep. of, we're, we're winging it. Uh, number three, this is a big one, administrative convenience. It uh, is very much easier to do Monday through Friday, eight to five. I can just bring you in, do the thing, turn you loose, you go back to work the next week, as opposed to I have to figure out a way to chunk your learning, to bring mm -hmm. you in for a couple hours here, a couple hours there, maybe mix some virtual kind of things. And, you know, it's really hard to do. And so we default to the thing that we know, and that is pretty easy to do. And then I think practical reality also 
really does work against us in a lot of ways. And that's, it's often hard for learners themselves to engage in ways that research might tell us they learn best. And Hmm. I've experienced that for myself. And we've had some conversations about this very thing this year, you and I, about my challenges in breaking away from work for an hour or two to participate in a certain event. Yep and come back the next week or two weeks from them and just kind of pick up the thread. As a practical matter, it can be very difficult to do that. So I think that really gets in our way as well. So it's that combination of things and others, but it's a pretty steep hill to be pushing the the rock up that we are pushing. Well, I think that plays perfectly to my next question is that you have made the pivot. I've admired and watched your team since the DIA days. And then as you came over to Siggy, I always am very careful to position any learning leader that I've seen take this journey as what I call a courageous one, because it is not the path you know, most traveled. To your point, all the four things you just went over. But what I admire about you and others we've had in this podcast is you, you still damn the torpedoes. I'm doing it. I, I always say this, this is not a journey for the faint at heart. So those listening who are going to make this pivot, what challenges lie ahead for those learning leaders and their teams who want to embark on this? A really wonderful uh, former colleague of mine, Russ Spalding, uh, who you uh, also know. Love Russ. Uh, he used to he used to have this great quote, and he, he said um, he would come to me and say, "Doug, a prophet is always hated in his own land." And so <laughs> we'd be trying to do all kinds of things internally and externally. People are saying, "Oh, wow, that's so great! Can you show us what you're doing?" And meanwhile, you know, we can't get the time of day internally. You have to understand that you are the outlier. You are the heretic. You're the Mm -hmm. different one and you have to get comfortable with that. I love that. Yeah. Second item would be resistance. And that would be from within your own team that Mm. they may not be comfortable with it. They may not understand it. You're going to get some resistance from your team and it's not personal. It just is different. Some people within the team will gravitate right to it. Others will not. Some will be in the middle, but you got to be okay with that and work with people over time, kind of meet them where they are and, and kind of grow together until you get to a point where everything's working. Third item, unlearning and relearning. Mm. And this, I mentioned up front that I was originally hired because I didn't know anything. And I found myself saying the other day, from here on out, I'm only hiring people who don't have a clue about anything to do with learning <laughs> so that we can work with them. It's much easier to work with a blank slate. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I, I have become the person that hired me, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and it's interesting too. I kind of reflected on, they were hiring me to do traditional things, maybe mm. in non-traditional ways, but still yeah. traditional things. Yeah. And the struggle previously, or the the struggle that they were fighting against was applying traditional learning in non-traditional formats, but it was still Mm -hmm. traditional. So it was delivering on-site learning to business and industry. Well, you know, we're a university, we don't do that, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, And being kind of a sales representative. Now it's really, for me, it's fundamentally shifting our entire approach to learning design and delivery and even our concept of what that is. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to work with people who are starting from knowing nothing than it is to start from a a base of people who have really worked in this field for a long time and have deeply ingrained beliefs or Mm. 
are simply just accustomed to doing it this way, even though they, you know, they may try as hard as they can. There's just a little bit of a little bit sure. more struggle. And those people who struggle have value too. Mm-hmm. We want to bring them along. I'm just saying I'm at this point, I'm thinking, boy, it would be easier if they didn't know anything. Um, there's that. I got a couple more here. Maintaining strategic patience. Mm. Uh, that is probably the hardest. I mean, this is a list of hard, but that's among the hardest because you run into so many delays and roadblocks and frustrations and why, you know, why can't we go faster? We need more time to do this right, you know, than, than kind of do it and on the side. We need more and different people to do it. Uh, so it's just maintaining a view of the North Star that is mm. where you want to go to help push you through the frustrations or not having enough people or whatever it happens to be. Another one, and this is a big one, when to involve with staff. So this is yeah. one of those things where you want to involve everybody up front. But the practical reality is you can't. You have to work with a smaller team. Yeah. And so then you have those folks who are in and those folks are out and managing the relationships becomes very challenging. And then when do you bring them in? You know, there's a point where you have to expand the circle, sure. but sure. when and how and uh, have you burned bridges by that point that, you know, they don't want to be in your circle anymore because right. you didn't right. let them in at the, at the beginning. Yep. Uh, and then the last thing, this is, I've said this a lot too. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Uh, once you've, once you've seen the flaws of the traditional and the goodness of the new, it's just going to drive you. I mean, it's the thing that gets under your skin. So if you're not prepared to have something under your skin, that's pushing you forward every day and making you crazy that you haven't fixed it yet. Don't get into it because it will do that. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. My first time I watched Condi this, Doug, I was a, you know, I was a starch ISD. We brought him into the company I worked for at the time. And I, I watched him do the five moments and a first RWA. And I was in the back of the room. It was the most disturbing professional day in my life. You know, because every ounce of my being was fighting what, what I was seeing. And I left that room and I had a rough evening. And I wasn't necessarily in there to adopt it, frankly. This was very, very early in, in my journey. And Troubled me the most was I couldn't help but look back at all the courses I'd written, all the e-learning I designed and go, how do I do that like that again? After I watched what he masterfully uncovered in that first day with Smee's in the room. And it became so apparent the misses I had had right. because of seeing and do it. It's, you, you hinted at it, friend. I think in your last conversation there, what drives you then? This is a mountain to climb, right? So what's the upside to your team the organization you support? What is driving you to stay in the fight? First, I think I need to acknowledge that this is not a universal truth in our organization that we have completely made the shift across all sure. all of our career fields. We really have one that we're pretty far along in, others that we haven't started in, and others that were kind of in the middle. So what I'm going to focus on here is in the one that's pretty far along because it is the example of what we want to do and what we want to be. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, I'd say uh, that the key stakeholders really love what we're doing. They bought in, they talk about it, they compliment us in front of their peers who are other leaders in the community. So we do get that feedback. Uh, Learners are asking for more things like it. Why can't (laughs) everything be like this thing? On the performance support side, we get a lot of questions about expanding access to our performance support tool. And that's been a bit of a challenge because it's a small group 
And as soon as you scale, yep. you know, you got to deal with scale and we're still trying to figure out good ways to manage that. But at the end of the day, they see what their neighbor has and yep. they want it. We also, from our team's perspective, I think our, our team is finding meaning in their work. They're, they're finding it interesting. Mm. They're finding mm. it impactful and they're applying it to different parts of their work life and even their personal life. You know, what, what's the context for this thing that, that <laughs> I'm involved in and how can I organize it in a way that's intuitive and easy to find and, and those sorts of things. There's also the element that we're not just delivering a course, we're enabling performance. Yeah, That in, enabling performance is inspiring, particularly when you remove the idea that I was brought up with as a young learning professional, that transfer is the supervisor's job back at the ranch. When we send them out, our job is done when we send them away mm. from our learning mm. experience. If you're enabling performance, your job does not end when yep. they leave. In fact, it's just beginning when they leave and you should have done a lot before they even got there. And that's on you. Once you accept that that's my responsibility, it's not the supervisor's responsibility, your frame of reference, your worldview changes and yeah. you've got a bigger job, but a lot cooler job than you had before. Love it. Yep. So friend, you mentioned this a little bit in there about the scaling thing <clears throat> and the navigator, which is spectacular and, and all the hard work you've done around that. Technology is all the buzz, LMS, LXP, LCMS. I mean, my gosh, all this, all this stuff. But at the same time, I don't mean to be bashing because it is an enabler. We live in an era where learning technologies, digital stuff is, is like we've never, ever had before. Can you talk a little bit about the technology in this workflow performance support stuff? What's the benefit downstream or and what's been your journey in, in trying to get your arms around that? Sure. Well, the, the biggest thing really is how much do you need and when? So mm -hmm. there are various platforms that you can invest in. They're you know large and small. And the question is, what are we trying to do with that? Yep. platform and how much can we maintain mm -hmm. um, how much can we afford those sorts of things and then again when do we scale when do we expand it so how much do you need and when because that'll change you know initially when nobody knows what you're doing uh, you're going to have five or ten people hitting that performance support platform as you grow and scale you're going to have a lot more and so you get much more into managing the accesses and, yep. and all those sorts of things. So, so how much do you need and when is a big one. Access to the platform itself is something that we've been talking about more recently. And so right now, here you can access the performance support platform on your laptop or on your phone or things like that. But do we need an app? You know, something like that. We've had a couple conversations with our learners and it yep. comes back to, uh, well, first, I got to know about it. And second, it's got to be really easy for me to access because I, I might yep. not be at my desk and I might not want to look it up on my cell phone. But, you know, maybe if we have an app or something like that, we can deal with that. So I, I don't know where we're going to go with that, but we're struggling with that one right now. Keeping the contents of whatever it is you're doing up to date yep. is a major, major challenge Yeah, currency. That, yep. that we're grappling with. And then I mentioned earlier, scaling, you know, how and when are you going to do that? Those are really my big four. Yeah. So what's been exciting about what we've done, and I've seen you do too, I think there's a maturity here. And so in organizations that doesn't have anything, 
something's great. <laughs> One of our dear colleagues, you know, Carol Stroud in our organization talks about, you know, taking a hospital through this journey that ultimately bought a sledgehammer in this domain, but started with linked PDFs because they didn't have anything else besides that when they started, except a mess of stuff. Your point about crawl, walk, run is big. So let's do this. If you got to get started, again, m- many people who listen, we get this feedback all the time. They so appreciate the stories at the same time to many. And this, fe- this seems like crossing the Grand Canyon, right? If, if they're out there listening, how do you dip your toe in this thing so that you start that pivot you started with earlier and you get, and you get on this climb? So the first thing I would do is find an intellectually curious go-getter on your staff to help out (laughs) or more. And really both at DIA and where I am now, I got lucky and found people who clicked with the ideas right away and just started running and running hard and who now are more of an expert than I ever could hope to be as much as I'm, I'm in it. Second would be find the most underserved group in your organization to partner with. Hmm. That would be somebody who is so desperate for attention and resources in the learning realm that they will suffer through all of your mistakes (laughs) and they will work with you. You know, when you want to pull together a group for a rapid workflow analysis or some kind of validation they will send their best and brightest and they'll sit there and they'll do it with you and they'll mm-hmm. take on jobs that you would have to do yourself otherwise. So that would be the, the second thing. And then the third big thing, and it took me a long time to really get this. The third thing is do something. I spent a lot of time talking about this <laughs> and nobody gets it. But as soon as we did something, as soon as you have something to show, Yep. everybody gets it. So do something because nobody gets it until they can see it. Doesn't matter what it is, do something. Don't talk about it. Perfect. Well, hey, my friend, it's an honor to have you as a friend and a colleague. It's been great to watch your journey. I so appreciate you've always been so willing to share good, bad, and ugly of what you've been through. So appreciate your candor and and, and directness about the whole thing, because I think I'm, I'm not beginning to say the pandemic is something you'd wish on anyone. But my dad always said there's good things in everything. And as L&D professionals, the need for us to support performance is like in my 39 years, I've never seen before. And I think there's an opening for leaders like you and and programs like this to be allowed if we take the plunge to do things very different. And it's so badly needed. So I thank you for your your courage, your leadership, and your willingness to share. As always, it's been great having you on. Well, thanks, Bob. I appreciate the opportunity. I want to shout from the rooftops every day, we're doing it wrong. (laughs) We need to do it better and different and come on along, you know, join the party. And really, more are joining the party. I just had that conversation today with somebody and I said, you know, that the choir is small, but the choir is bigger than it used to be. It's, yeah, it is. it's growing. It so. is, my friend. Thank you. This helps. Appreciate right, it. You will be safe. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle, at B-M-O-S-H, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.the5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.